Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center at the University of Oregon. Welcome to this fourth public lecture in the OHC's annual named lecture series. The OHC encourages and participates in the university's ongoing efforts to support tribal communities and indigenous community members. We recognize the role uh, academia and research institutions have played and continue to play in colonialism. And as part of our recognition of that history and its contemporary manifestations, we offer this land acknowledgement. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 51 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the coast reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. In following the indigenous protocol of acknowledging the original people of the land we occupy, we also extend our respect to the nine federally indigenous nations of Oregon, the Burns Paiute tribe, the Confederated Tribes of the Coos, Lower Umpqua, and Susla Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Grand Ronde, the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, the Coquel Indian Tribe, and the Cow Creek Band of Umpqua Tribe of Indians and the Klamath Tribes. We express our respect to the many more tribes who have ancestral connections to this territory, as well as to all other displaced indigenous peoples who call this place that we call Oregon home. The Oregon Humanities Center's theme for 2021-22 is Imagining Futures. The series seeks to re-examine some of today's pivotal social issues in order to envision a more just and sustainable future for all. As with all OHC-themed lectures, our series seeks to create space for experts to share their research and knowledge and to foster conversation and understanding. We'll have time for Q&A at the end of the talk. If you have questions at that point, please type your questions into the chat function of Zoom. I will moderate and ask the questions. We've also enabled closed captioning you can activate captions using the live transcript option at the bottom of your window. The talk is being recorded and will be available for viewing on the Oregon Humanities Center's website and YouTube channel. Before I introduce today's speaker, some customary thanks. First, thanks as always to the OHC's incomparable staff, our Associate Director Gina Turner, Program Coordinator Melissa Gustafson, and Communications Coordinator Peg Gearhart. Thanks also to the OHC's generous donors, without whom we could not support the kind of innovative humanities research, teaching, and public programming that we do, or host eminent scholars, writers, and artists like our speaker today, Leanne Beatus-Samosay-Simpson-Beck, scholar, writer, and musician. Dr. Simpson will present this year's Robert D. Clark Lecture in the Humanities. The Clark Lecture was established in 1994, and has been sustained since then through the generosity of the Oregon Community Foundation. We are grateful for the foundation's steadfast support of the humanities and the OHC. The Clark Lecture aims to promote public discussion on the natural sciences and social and cultural affairs, as exemplified by Thomas Condon, geologist, paleontologist, and founding member of the University of Oregon. 
The lectureship was named in honor of former UO president Robert D. Clark, author of The Odyssey of Thomas Condon. When we began thinking about possible Clark lecturers for our Imagining Futures theme, we reached out to our indigenous colleague, OHC advisory board member, and the director of UO's Native American Studies program, Professor Kirchens. His recommendation was prompt, enthusiastic, and clear. Leanne Simpson would be the perfect indigenous thinker, scholar, and leader to speak as this year's Clark lecturer to help us imagine new futures. Leanne Simpson has worked for over two decades as an independent scholar using Nishnabek intellectual practices, teaching at universities across Canada and the US. She earned a PhD in interdisciplinary studies from the University of Manitoba and currently teaches at Dechinta, the Center for Research and Learning in Denende. Leanne Simpson is the author of numerous books, including most recently, as we have always done, Indigenous Freedom Through Radical Resistance 2017, which was awarded the best subsequent book by the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. The novel No Pimming, The Cure for White Ladies 2020, named the best book by mail and shortlisted for the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction, as well as a short history of the blockade, Giant Beavers, Diplomacy and Regeneration in Nishnabekwin, 2021. Leanne Simpson is also a prolific musician and performer. Among her four albums is the award-winning Theory of Ice, released in 2021. When much of the world entered pandemic lockdown in spring 2020, Simpson and Robin, Robin Maynard, a Canadian writer and scholar and author of Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present, began writing each other letters, a gesture sparked by friendship and solidarity. They had a desire for kinship and a connection in a world shattering under the intersecting crises of pandemic, police killings, and climate catastrophe. Focusing on her first letter, Leanne Simpson will share with us today her experience of this transformative collaboration in her talk, Rehearsals for Living, My First Letter. Please join me in welcoming Leanne Simpson. Thank you, Paul, Melissa, and Peg for all your labor and for that fantastic introduction. And thanks to everyone who's joining us today. Bonjour, Anin Kinawaya, Gidagabajuna Denawema, Kinigatia Nishnabek Oguming Nadonjaba, Nagajawani Megwadoda, Vidasamusa, Nibijnikal, Nigitinandam Gibijayan, Nibijnwatanguk. My name is Leanne. I am Michi Sagik Inishnabek, a band member of Elderville First Nation. Our homeland is the North Shore of Lake Ontario. Uh, today I'm coming to you from Sambake in Denande or in the Northwest Territories in the far north. I'm in Yellowknife Dene homeland and um, I'm teaching a a couple of, of intensive courses on the land in, uh, in Yellowknife territory. Rehearsals for Living is a book project that I wrote alongside uh, Robin Maynard. Robin is a phenomenal Black scholar and organizer and writer and is the author of Policing Black Lives, which 
is a groundbreaking book in Canada and beyond because it detonates Canadian exceptionalism in terms of transatlantic slavery and anti-Blackness through a meticulous and rigorous study of those particular genocides in a Canadian context. The book is not out yet, but you can pre-order it. It's coming out um, in the abolition series from Haymarket Books in June of 2022. Um, we've just uh, finished the proofs and, and things are heading off to the printer. And um, the book begins with a letter that Robin wrote me at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the project was sort of just a project between two intellectuals writing to each other, uh, thinking alongside each other. And we did this for about six months, um, not thinking that it would be a book project and not thinking that we would be publishing, um, thinking that we would be, I think, just learning from each other and processing the, the events of not just um, the pandemic, but the global uprising for Black lives. Um, and then Robin had a, a conversation, a pandemic walk with Dion Brand, and Dion felt really strongly that the, the project should be made into a book. And so uh, Dion hooked us up and, and here we are. So I'm going to read, um, from my first letter, not the entire letter, um, but excerpts from, from that first letter so that you can get an idea of the project and the kinds of issues that, that we're thinking of. Um, I hope you come away with a sense that it, it's not sort of two moms in the pandemic writing about the sisterhood, <laughs> um, which I think has been, uh, has been the way that some, some of the promoters want to promote it. But um, I think our intentions were, were different than that. Robin, the first thing I underlined in my now worn out copy of your book, Policing Black Lives, was the very first line of the acknowledgement section. Quote, writing Policing Black Lives was a community affair. Born out of movement work, it is geared towards nourishing those same movements that have given me life over the last years. I knew after reading that first line that this book was going to be distinct. Policing Black Lives was written for different reasons than most books published in Canada, reasons that I had profound respect for. Knowledge, research, analysis, and writing born out of movement work and geared towards nourishing, sustaining, and propelling movements for Black lives. Robust intellectual work in service of radical Black futurities. Policing Black lives holds up community and shines a light on the generations of freedom fighters whose individual and collective sacrifices have brought us to this moment. As I read on, I underlined our careful and gentle insistence that Black and Indigenous struggles while distinct, were also linked. This was significant to me because it gestures towards a more rigorous and nuanced relationality between Black and Indigenous communities 
reminiscent of radical black feminist traditions embodied in so many. Writers like Makeda Silvera, Nerbesi Phillips, Dion Brandt, and Athea Cooper. In Policing Black Lives, you were the first one to gather together the work of black feminists and organizers and provide us with a volcano of meticulously researched evidence that destroyed Canadian innocence and exceptionalism with regards to transatlantic slavery and anti-blackness. In Policing Black Lives, you taught me abolition on soul and land is the practice of caring. My book, as we have always done, came out in the same year as your Policing Black Lives. I remember wishing your book had come out first because it would have made, as we have always done, more complete and rigorous. I would have brought Policing Black Lives into conversation with the chapters in As We Have Always Done and from an Indigenous perspective, pointed towards the same robust and nuanced relationality between Indigenous and Black communities you have done in Policing Black Lives, albeit from my own Anishinaabeg perspective. When an occasion presented itself to launch As We Have Always Done in Drojaga, or Montreal, in Ghanivihaga territory where you were living at the time, I wanted to invite you into a conversation, a thinking through between ourselves and our books. You graciously accepted the invitation and our conversation took place on April 14, 2018. This was the very first time we had met in person. I remember the Black community of Montreal showing up in power at the event. I remember being very nervous, as one should be when they, their first encounter with someone is on a stage with a mic in front of a beautiful, articulate, intelligent audience. I remember your pink lipstick. I remember my blue sex. I remember being painfully aware I was dressed like I was from Ontario. I can't remember very much about what we talked about, but we obviously had the sense to record it because there is an edited transcript of part of our conversation in Until We Are Free, Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. This was our very first visit. Roughly a year later in 2019, as part of my work at the Jacinta Center for Research and Learning in Banembe, I helped conceptualize, organize, and actualize a solidarity gathering that took place in March in the territory of the Yellowknife First Nation. Our idea was simple, to invite a small group of Black, Brown, and Indigenous activists, thinkers, writers, and organizers to spend time with us in the spring on an island in what the Yellowknife Dene know as Tinde or Big Lake. Together we fished nets under the ice, traveled by snowmobile and sleigh across the frozen lake, shared moose ribs cooked over the fire, stories from elders, our own ideas and time with each other. We wanted to invest in our relationship 
with each other and our communities outside of the institution, the internet, and crises. Because we believe that the land would pull out a different set of conversations and gift us with a different way of relating. We wanted to sit together on the land, immersed in a Dene world, engaged in a practice of Dene hospitality to see if we related to each other in a different way. This is exactly what happened. The land nurtured a set of conversations and a way of relating to each other outside of the institution and its formation. I remember you and I eating muskox around the fire, talking about how different eating muskox around the fire in the bush was from meeting in a hallway or bar at a conference or interacting online. We were also meeting and there was no crisis or blockade or protest or agenda. We were coming together to nourish each other, to relate to each other, to listen and share, and to breathe together to use Nurbasi Phillips thinking. I could intellectualize about the experience and speak in terms of relationality and relationship building something I think Black and Indigenous activists in the 1960s and 1970s understood far better than us. I could talk about this from an Indigenous methodological angle with visiting and developing relationships of trust as foundational to any exchange of knowledge and experience. I could write about the spiritual dimension of this work from, again, Indigenous perspectives, being surrounded by trees, medicine, air, sky, and water. In a sense though, none of that particularly matters other than to say, I think land-based politics grounded in a sustained and nurturing relationship with the natural world and in protecting nature as a means of protecting ourselves can be one generative means of nourishing black and indigenous politics of solidarity. Our starting point was simple, that land and placemaking, although perhaps different, were and remain important to both Black and Indigenous peoples. Our starting point was a refusal of the nation state and racial capitalism, white supremacy and heteropatriarchy embodied in those structures. Our starting point was a recognition that transatlantic slavery, and as Sadea Hartman says, its afterlife and colonialism mean we have distinctive and intertwined histories, presence, and distinctive and intertwined theory and world building practices. We imagined the synergistic potential of Black land politics and indigenous land politics towards liberated lands and bodies. After that gathering, the possibilities to continue this work seemed endless. Trips to the sugar bush, hikes in downtown Toronto, exchanges between our freedom schools, gatherings in the Caribbean, and then the pandemic hit. Our lives shrunk into our home spaces during stay-at-home orders, 
there was an urgency in addressing the pandemic under white supremacy because we knew that black, brown, and indigenous peoples are always the first to die and that state solutions will be made to first save white people's lives and livelihoods. Zoom seemed like the very last place we wanted to continue this work. In fact, to me, it felt like virtual environments were anti um, critical to this work. And so you and I decided to write each other letters because we couldn't see each other in person. As an honored radical black feminist methodology of scaffolding the intimate and personal within the global, letter writing made sense. We decided not only to write what we know, but to attempt to think through things together, to generate through this intentional relationship, a sort of study of black and indigenous relationality through the study of our own responsive relationality. In hindsight, and after reading Catherine McKittrick's Dear Science, each of us drew on our distinctive rebellious methodologies in this project. For you, Black theory, story, knowledge, and methodologies of knowledge production. For me, Anishinaabe story as theory, knowledge and methodologies of knowledge production. The intersection was friendship, collaboration, song, story, movement work, citation, analytics, and oral practice. These interstitial spaces are this project. We made a commitment to each other to think alongside each other through the chaos of the global COVID-19 pandemic, through the ongoing pandemics of Black and Indigenous death and erasure, and through the beautiful revolutions of Black and Indigenous organizing and resistance. We agreed to be first and foremost empathetic, responsible, and gentle with each other, which required a trust and a vulnerability that for me was new in intellectual work. We did not shy away from the issues and tensions between our two communities. So what began as a series of letters with footnotes between us has grown into something that has expanded outside of the two of us and then grown again into rehearsals for living. This book is a chronicle of our thinking in a particular moment of time. It's messy, it's incomplete, it's gentle, it is in its simplest form, a record of our relationality. The recording of this record required a divestment of the arrogance of the expert in favor of openness, intimacy, care, and humility. And so these letters are also songs that chronicle our love and friendship. And like making a record, listening became perhaps the most important methodology. You are a fully formed thinker, writer, and researcher, not because of the credentials of the academy, but because of your practice, your ethics, 
and your bodies of work. You are steeped in an extensive network of movement and organizing experience in black systems of knowledge production, analysis, and theory making, in addition to the written work of black and anti-colonial scholars. Robin Maynard, I have learned so very much from you and those formations of young black activists on our streets, bringing forth new worlds before our very eyes. There are many, many indigenous and black peoples that have done and are doing the same kinds of thinking in the academy and outside on the streets, in encampments, in prisons, around kitchen tables, and in the bush. We are centering indigenous and black life and lives because we are Anishinaabek and black, not because we don't value our relationships and solidarity with anti-colonial racialized peoples in Canada and beyond. We will go carefully. At this point in the book, I go on to write about the beginning of the pandemic, that time two years ago now, when we were under the first stay at home order, where we didn't know phrases like second wave or third wave or sixth wave. We were barely wearing masks and where black activists and organizers were building support systems, protests, and communities of care for their communities. I was thinking through with Robin how my understanding of the pandemic at that time will potentially impact folks already dealing with the pandemics of anti-Blackness, colonialism, and climate change. In the service of time for this talk, I'm going to leave that section out and move to the end of my first letter to Robin, where I think about indigenous life and pandemics through the historical experience of my ancestors and my family. Um, the first story that I'm going to share has sexualized and gendered violence in it. And so if that's a trigger or if that's too much for you to take on right now, um, take a break and come back in about five minutes. So this, um, this story is called Wabakinini. Prior to the pandemic, I imagined you and I taking our kids and physically walking along the route from your home to places on Bay Street in Toronto where our collective genocides are always being mapped out. I thought it would be interesting to walk the land and walk the city together with indigenous and black loves from different generations. I was interested to see how our kids would find joy anyway, because that is the gift of young people. I was interested to see how we would find joy anyway. I was interested in how we would each uncover signals from and of our communities and separate these signals from the noise of the city. 
I was interested to see the Black and Indigenous worlds we would together create along the route. I was interested in developing this as a practice over time, perhaps taking different groups of people with us, collectively coding, decoding, and recoding the city. What would happen if we took the land-based practice of walking the land, walking a part of our intertwined worlds together? What would be our experience and what would we learn? How would we deepen our relationship to each other and to this place? Now, given the pandemic, we don't know when we will be able to walk anywhere together. Underneath the visible Toronto, or maybe not underneath, maybe the side, is an indigenous Toronto. Amichi Sagi Kinishnabek Chiangi Kewen, Honushoni Toronto, a Wendat place, one that exists today and one that used to exist in relation to the buried and forgotten creeks, the island that didn't used to be an island, and the rivers, and So these are the Rouge River, the Humber River, the Don River, and the Credit River when the kids weren't paying attention because we loaded them up with ice cream and we were standing where the St. Lawrence Market is today, I'd ask first because there's sexual violence in this story and then I'd whisper. On August 20th, 1796, a small group of Michisagik Nishnabek came to York, now Toronto, from the Credit River to sell salmon in the area around what is now known as the St. Lawrence Market. Wabakinini, his partner, and his sister, whose name the colonial historical record did not record, camped for the night on the waterfront across from Barry's Tavern, just east of the market block. The remainder of their group camp on the peninsula, which eventually evolved into the Toronto Islands. Just before midnight, a Queens Ranger, Charles McEwen, approached Wabakinini's family. At some point that evening, McEwen had given Wabakinini's sister a dollar and some rum to, quote, induce her to grant him certain favors. McEwen arrived with two compatriots to rape Oda Wiman, Wabakini's sister. Wijiwagan, Wabakinini's partner, awoke to see McEwen dragging, dragging Oda Wibam from the canoe she had been sleeping under. Of course, she woke Wabakinini for help. Wabakinini confronted the three white men and McEwen murdered him and then physically assaulted Wijiwagan. Their Anishinaabek relations on the peninsula heard the terror and rushed to Wabakinini, Oda Wiman and Wijiwagan. The white men who had viciously attacked the Nichisagik and Anishinaabek had left. 
the Anishinaabek collected their loved ones and carried them to the peninsula. The next day, they took them home to the Credit River. Wabakinini died of his injuries along the way. Wijiwagan died of her injuries shortly after. They were buried soon after that. When this story spread across Kinagatu Nishnabek Ogumin, Mitisagik Nishnabek were outraged and demanded accountability and justice, and they mobilized. McEwen faced a grand jury in mid-December for the murder of Wabakinini, but was promptly discharged as a result of it not having been proven that the chief with whose murder he was charged is dead. No white authorities had seen Wabakinini's body, which the Mississaugas had buried soon after his death, as is our tradition. The Mississaugi Kanishnabek refused to appear in court to give evidence, I presume because they had zero faith in colonial judicial processes to bring about justice, accountability, or a rebalancing of relations, or perhaps because policing and justice systems were not part of the world they had built and the ways that they took care of each other. Despite having conversations with their allies, including Six Nations, the Mitisagi Kinishnabek were unable to launch a military attack on Fort York. They were ultimately too overwhelmed with death from infectious disease, dispossession, and the colonial-induced collapse of their economic, social, and political systems. This story is eerie. It's methodic, deliberate, and rhythmic repetition of violence from Fort York in 1796 to Toronto in 2022 is infuriating. As you know, a different but related set of events took place 62 years before these murders the horrific torture and murder of an enslaved Black woman in 1734, Marie-Joseph Angelique in Dojaga or Montreal, as told to us by Othea Cooper in her meticulous work, The Hanging of Angelique. Angelique was arrested, tortured, and publicly hanged for attempting to flee from her white mistress, and she was accused of burning down old Montreal. Both you in Policing Black Lives and Cooper compel us to remember or learn that this story is one of resistance and revolt. We have been together in this place for a very long time. As I write this, I'm thinking of the murders and resistance of Marie Joseph Angelique and Ouijiwagan and their families and communities in Toronto and Montreal. Of course, we know the logics that led to the death of these women were different. These stories are not the same and they are not equivalent. What is overwhelming to me in bringing these two stories into conversation is that these same narratives have been repeated over and over and over again 
in the years since 1763 and 1796. And there are now thousands upon thousands of Black people and Indigenous people who have experienced eliminatory, sexualized, and gendered violence, particularly trans and queer people. I want to build a world alongside yours, where, as Ruthie Wilson Gilmore says, all life is precious. After our walk, I wanted to invite you and your child to Ngojawani, or Peterborough, Ontario, which is my home. I would have told you the story that made me. Instead, I'll write you a version of the story, a version that speaks to epidemics and loss, hope and resistance, family and land, and the love that binds us together. So this uh, last story is called uh, Civil Twilight. In the 1930s, my grandmother Audrey was a 10 year old Nishinaabe living on Wolf Street in Peterborough, Ontario, having recently moved into town from the reserve, but still spending glorious summers on the lake in her home community of Elderville First Nation. Her father and my great-grandfather, Hartley Franklin, was most often a fishing guide on Rice Lake, and he had found more stable employment building canoes for the Peterborough Canoe Company, necessary in part because of the loss of hunting and fishing rights in the wake of the fraudulent Williams Treaties of 1923. The life he created itself was a seat an intact Mitisagi Kinishabe family with children in the home, living in our homeland with food and shelter, but the calm would not last. A decade before the discovery of antibiotics, Hartley contracted tuberculosis and was quarantined in a sanatorium more than 200 kilometers away in Kitchener, Ontario. Audrey, her mother and little brother moved to Galt to be closer to him. When Andre's mama, Agnes, also got TB, my grandmother and her brother were apprehended into foster care with white families. Hartley, her father, eventually died in the sanatorium when my grandmother was 14. She remembers standing by his casket in Grandma Ida Smoke's living room on the reserve at Alderville while her mom was fighting for her life in the sanatorium. Two years later, Agnes recovered, but my grandma was forced to quit school when their living allowance was cut off. She got a job at Galt Wood Heel, gluing heels onto shoes for 10 hours a day. In the span of the decades, my family went from living on the reserve, immersed in Anishinaabe life and community, to being alone with grief in a city several hundred kilometers away. Tuberculosis succeeded in removing my family from our territory, away from our land, family, culture, and language, and pushed us further 
into the wage economy, meeting Canada's political goals of eliminating Indigenous people through either death or assimilation. I now live a few blocks away from the house my grandmother lived in as a child in Peterborough. Every night at eight o'clock, my daughter Minaway and I run through our neighborhood. The streets are quiet. Min likes the color of the sky at civil twilight. She practices her vertical leap by attempting to high five a giant white pine. I think about how each week she gets faster and faster while I stay exactly the same. By the time we're back at our house, away from the motion detecting lights of our neighbors, we can see the first stars. She points them out and names them while I just listen, which I now realize is always the most important job. A strong part of me wants to use these half hour runs to lecture my captive audience of one. I want Min to carry within her body a sharp knife. I want to assign her Robin Maynard, Andrea Ritchie, and Elle Jones' recent writings on COVID-19 in the dominating structure of anti-Blackness and then discuss them on our nightly run. I want to talk to her about communities like Grassy Narrows and how they will face COVID-19 with all of the same challenges as other remote First Nations, food insecurity, lack of adequate housing and healthcare, and the endless fumbling bureaucracy of indigenous service agencies in places where community members already have compromised health from mercury poisoning in the 1970s, TB exposure in residential schools, and a host of other chronic colonial-induced diseases. I want her to know the situation for urban Indigenous people is challenging in a different way under COVID-19. Our families, too, experience high rates of housing and food insecurity, but also police surveillance and violence, incarceration, intimate violence, substance use, and street-affected realities. And for our gender non-conforming, non-binary and trans relations, navigating a mostly hostile medical system committed to the gender binary and transphobia. I want her to know that for, for Prairie First Nations and Métis peoples, the death-making machine of white racism has already intensified during the pandemic. On the first day of April, Calgary police charged a man for uttering death threats when he said he would intentionally spread COVID-19 to Indigenous peoples. On April 2nd, RCMP arrested a suspect in the murder of two Métis men, Jake Sanson and Morris Cardinal, who were out hunting to feed their family. And on April 9th, 16-year-old Aisha Hudson was shot and killed by the Winnipeg police. I want her to know that the oil and gas industry has continued to endanger Indigenous peoples and with Soweton homelands by continuing to work along the pipeline route and housing hundreds of workers in work camps. I want her to know that we and everyone we love are more vulnerable because of colonialism and in crises, vulnerabilities are amplified. I want her to know that we are not in this together.
the empty streets of our neighborhood under social distancing and stay-at-home orders remind me of the loneliness Hartley Franklin must have felt, quarantined in an institution for years, far from everything in Anishinaabek and all of his love. I wonder if he would feel the same relief I do watching men harvesting wild rice or splitting spruce roots for a canoe or standing in traffic in solidarity with the Wasoatans or running with the stars through the neighborhood where he brought his family in the precious moment before Anishinaabek life was stolen. I wonder if he could still find meaning in twilight or stars or in the frozen lake of the grief that inevitably blanketed him. Minaway is living through a pandemic at the same age my grandmother was when she lost her dad to the epidemic of tuberculosis. She is teaching me not to crush her joy. On our nightly runs, she demands I stay in the moment, breathe in sharp air, and listen for the drumming of our shoes on the cement against the rhythm of our breathing. She reminds me to look forward to the crew at the end of the street that meticulously chalks Scooby-Doo characters onto their sidewalk each day, to not aimlessly veer into traffic when I see another human on the sidewalk, and to maybe even practice my vertical jumps too. It's night, Minowewe Beneshi pulls me out of myself and insists I remember that running through inky bruises, seeking light from the moon and beside someone you love is one of the best parts of life. She reminds me that maybe if you are a 14-year-old in Nishnavai and you can find the will to reach up to our tree of peace, you don't always need the lecture and the sharp knife. Maybe you've already beaten COVID-19. Maybe you are in the midst of dreaming beyond colonialism. Neglect. Thank you, Leanne, for your talk, your words, your stories. I just want to remind everyone in the audience that if you'd like to ask Leanne Simpson a question about her talk or her work, to please type it into the chat and I will ask the questions. Leanne, let me begin by asking about the title of the forthcoming collaboration with uh, Robin Maynard, uh, Rehearsals for a Living. Say a little bit about that title. Why, why did you two agree to that title? Rehearsals for Living comes from the work of uh, the very brilliant Black scholar, Lucy Wilson Gilmore, and it is used here with her permission. And it was something that resonated both for Robin and I. I think that I've been thinking a lot of this idea of rehearsals, in part because I'm a musician and a performer and I spend a lot of time in rehearsal. Um, and I spend a lot of time focused on, on repetition. And so I know that the, the work that I spend singing or saying over and over and over again, that I carry with me and perform on tours to different audiences in different regions um, that I, I say uh, that I struggle to stay in the moment with, 
that I struggle to stay to stay focused with because I, I know it so well that I struggle not to be bored um, is a, a practice that generates new knowledge for me. It's a practice that generates new sounds, new songs. It's generative. And so when I'm with my, my band, um, I think all bands know this, that there's this sort of special thing about rehearsal where there's a freedom um, to sort of communicate and relate to the other instruments and the other band members, almost as a private intimate space, not so concerned all the time with how it sounds and how, how the audience is perceiving the work. So that's one place that it came from. A second place that I came from is, is that I think both Robin and I share this belief that people coming together on the land in commune and making something is a site of knowledge generation. And so whether that's um, people around a kitchen table or a fire or in the streets in a protest or a reading group in a prison, um, this is, is something that's special and that has been a really important part of the methodology of Black study, of the methodology of Indigenous study in our communities. It's been an important part of our, of our movement. And um, we don't have the sort of political power right now to um, build these alternative worlds to the exclusion of the colonial world, but we do have the power to rehearse again and again and again. And each time we rehearse, I think we're collectively generating and sharing the knowledge and the skills that we need to, to usher in these new worlds. Thank you. Before I ask the next question, I just want to share a comment from our colleague, Michelle Jacob, uh, who you have met. Uh, Michelle says, thank you for helping us dream beyond colonialism. Mm -hmm. And the next question is you, one of the parts of uh, the letter that you read was a series of descriptions of what you and Robin had hoped to be able to do a land-based practice of walking through the streets together with your children of Toronto, but that the COVID-19 epidemic made that impossible. Have you been able to do that since? And are you still planning to do it together? We have not yet been able to do, um, to do that. I think that we, are now um, sort of going to be launching this book together, and that will inevitably involve bringing our children along. And I think that um, we're looking forward to the day of that, that we're able to to make maple syrup together and and to walk the land. I think that we've used this project to deepen our relationship to each other, and um, I think that yeah, it's that it's something that that will continue. Our friendship will continue for sure. My next question is about um, the shift from this as a series of letters, intimate letters shared between two individuals to the decision to make it a book and share it way beyond yourselves. What challenges did you face in coming to that decision and why did you finally make that decision? I think the biggest challenge was that uh, we loved the process of making this, this book. These letters, um, and we're both writers and we're both intellectuals and we're both like 
Sizzle's kind of dorky. And so our letters always had like 64 footnotes and they always accompanied like a reading list. Um, she was always, Robin was always pointing me to things that I, that I hadn't read or that I hadn't thought about and vice versa. And so this process became something that really sustained us through the beginning part of the pandemic. And we didn't want to stop. We wanted to, to keep this space of getting up in the morning and, and writing and then sort of thinking with Robin and having imaginary conversations with her all day long. I didn't want to, to give that up. So that was the hardest thing was to, to stop the letter writing and to recognize um, that she actually has a PhD to finish and, and we had other things that we needed to be doing. Um, I think that the letters, to be honest, are quite um, intact. They're quite similar in a lot of ways to those initial, the initial draft. I think we brought in more um, footnotes and endnotes and evidence. We were um, more maybe specific. We were, um, we thought through citations. Uh, we had lots and lots of discussions around citations. We wanted to really hold space and name a lot of the Black and Indigenous women and queer folks that had influenced us. Um, who we were, we were thinking alongside and, and thinking with. Um, but I think this sort of level of intimacy and the audience um, and, and the topics uh, remain sort of intact from those, from those early drafts to the, to the book form. Uh, our next questioner asks, uh, what is the role of your creativity and art making in healing? I think that um, I was just thinking about that in the courses that I'm, I'm teaching here at the Chinta. We've got um, 10 Dene women um, or indigenous women out on the land. We have a big team of land-based practitioners and elders. Um, our first course was on creative practice and storytelling and so we were joined by a, a Korean Anishinaabe graffiti artist, uh, Tanya Willard, who is um, a, a practicing artist and a professor at the University of British Columbia at Okanagan, and Karen Wright Fraser, who's a Gwich'in textile artist and sewer. And one of the things that I noticed was that these artistic practices that we were we were sort of splitting the afternoon, so we were doing our our lectures for half the afternoon, and then we were engaged in creative practice, visiting, sewing, spray painting, making stencils. Really assisted students in processing, or gave students a another set of tools in addition to the land to process the emotions that they were experiencing through through the, um, the content. And so when we went to teach the course on gender, which is the one we're doing this week, we kept those artist instructors uh, on site um, to be another venue of, of moving, another tool for, to help students move through and process what they're learning. And I think that has created a situation 
where the group dynamics and the governance of our community because we're all living together um, is, is really helpful. I think for me, um, creative space has given me a place where I can use my voice, find my voice, um, where I can <laughs> learn to be confident. I sort of was more proficient in academics and then writing first and then went um, back into music and performance. And so um, performance, I think, particularly with a band uh, teaches me or reminds me that I have to trust the people that I'm on stage with. Reminds me I have to listen to the people that I'm on stage with. And it has always been, I think, a profound act of bravery and resistance for me as an indigenous woman, particularly in music, to step up to the mic and, and use my voice and hear my voice. Um, and I think all of that, to be able to do that required me to deal with a lot of my shit and a lot of my trauma and a lot of my uh, pain through therapy and through ceremony. And I think that it might have, while creative arts and expression and sovereignty might have been a place for healing, I also had to do a whole bunch of other healing work to be able to do it. And I think it was, in that way, it was sort of an impetus for, for um, facing, I think, the trauma that I had experienced in my life. Uh, the next question um, runs in your talk spoke of this exchange of letters and friendship uh, in uh, creating a more robust and nuanced relationality between yourself and Robin Maynard. Um, can you speak also about the ways in which the example that the two of you have set might be used to help share the lessons that you have learned about building a robust and nuanced relationality between indigenous and black communities more generally? I think one of the things that I learned was that the, the sort of group of activists and organizers that came before me and that were working in community to meet the needs of community um, in the 1960s and 1970s, spent a lot of time building face-to-face -face relationships of trust between communities. And so um, we looked at different kind of historic examples of, of Black organizing, Indigenous organizing from that era. And it became really clear that that visiting this relationship building process was something that was really important that we sort of developed um, theories and framings where um, we were focused on how our histories and our presence and our futures were intertwined and distinctive. And so I think that it showed me that while the internet has its, its use, um, that being offline and off-grid also has its use and also has its place. And um, I think that our approach allowed us to really, on a personal level, sort of deepen 
um, our relationship to each other and then to the bodies of work that make uh, each of us as, as scholars. I think you've already begun to answer the, the next question that we have. The question is, how can we become more organized to make changes? Your emphasis on relationship building as a means of building trust for uh, collaborative uh, change uh, seems to be a beginning to answer that question. But is there anything more you might say about how we can become more organized to make changes? I think it's really important to come together as uh, in groups of, of, of people, even if it's just a group of three, and organize to meet a particular need of the community and to sort of give back. And I think it's important because um, even if it fails in terms of a big, more, a, a larger political mobilization or a larger political change, you've still helped somebody and you've still come together solve the problem, learned how to organize logistically and embody some of the political ethics and practices that, um, that often as scholars and students were just reading about. So I think that coming together and, and practicing making something, whether that's a protest or um, a poem or a song, organizing to meet the, the material needs of our people, um, giving back, um, I think all of those things are really, really important. The doing is important. Um, the making is important. Leanne, we're coming to the end of our time. This will be our, my last question for you. Um, the question uh, mentions the part of your talk when you described uh, your evening runs with your daughter and you said that during those uh, those runs, she helped to teach you not to crush her joy. Mm -hmm. And this questioner is asking, um, are there other lessons that you can share with us to help to, so that we are, that our joy is not crushed in this time of multiple overlapping epidemics uh, and and social and political challenge? I think one of the things that I love about my job and about spending time with, with Denny folks out on the land is that no matter what happens, there's a lot of laughing, there's a lot of joking, there's a lot of storytelling, there's a lot of caretaking. And um, that ability to, to make fun of um, our situation and each other in this kind of loving and careful and empathetic way is something that I think really helps me cope. Um, and it really helps me um, remember that it's okay to feel joy and that it's not just okay, that it's, it's vital. And in, we need joy and we need indigenous spaces of joy and black spaces of joy and shared spaces of joy in order to sustain us and in order to sustain the work that we're gonna do. And so, as someone who organizes and as, as sort of an academic and a writer, um, I can um, break out into a lecture on colonialism at the drop of the hat. And one of the things that I've learned from my kids is that's not always appropriate. <laughs> well, thank you, Leanne, so much for that uh, fascinating and enlightening talk for uh, your incredible spirit and wisdom 
It has been such a pleasure. Miigwech for having me and thanks to all the students and, and faculty that were able to join us. And I know that this is a crazy stressful time of year. So I wish you all the best with the end of, end of your term. Thank you so much, Leanne. Thanks everyone again for joining us for Leanne Simpson's fascinating talk and conversation. Uh, if you would like more information on other upcoming events sponsored by the Oregon Humanities Center, or you'd like to support our public and research programs, visit ohc.uoregon.edu. Thanks so much again, Leanne, for joining us. Thanks everyone for watching.